can say. I'm out here doing everything you suck as cake. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of our podcast, Break Some Dishes. If you don't know, this is a podcast where we search for those rare individuals who are forcing us to reevaluate the way we do things. In the name of our planet, they're questioning the status quo and challenging establishment, challenging laziness and apathy, and showing us that there are better ways of doing things so that this planet of ours can start to put itself back together. Because we'd like to know that our grandchildren and their children will get to grow up one day in a world that has not been destroyed and polluted and decimated, and they won't have to put on a hazmat suit just to go to the damn park or visit a museum to see animals that used to roam the earth. I'm John Strasner, and my friend Verda Alexander here are finding these unique voices and bringing them to the design industry for inspiration, because we think everyone impacts design, and design impacts everyone. So I'm going to turn things over to Verda so she can introduce today's guests. Yes, we actually have more than one today, and we're super excited. Go ahead, Verda. Tell everybody who's with us today to bust some damn dishes. Thank you, John. Yeah, that would be terrible. I would just look awful in a hazmat suit. (laughs) I know you would. I wouldn't put one on either unless it was black. (laughs) All right. Our guest today... Rebecca Matheny is an interior design professor at Ohio State University. She holds a master's in architecture and a concentration in sustainable studies. Prior to academia, she practiced in a multidisciplinary retail and brand strategy firm. This helped her bridge the design profession with the academic environment. Verda, wait, we had a deal that we don't have people on this show that are smarter than us. She already sounds smarter than us. We've broken that rule every time, John. Uh, that's true. I didn't realize how easy that rule was to break. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Go okay. Ahead. She gets to research some super cool stuff. Uh, she was researching the sensory experience of retail environments and how they create emotional connections and forge meaningful memories and relationships through product, people, brand, and place. And she is now researching slow fashion and how that translates into what she calls the slow retail experience. Rebecca and Royce met and forged this amazing material studio that has become so much more. Wait, did we did we tell everyone we got two guests on today? We've got two guests. Yeah, I okay. said that. I said we were super excited. We got it's a two for two for the price okay. of one. <laughs> All yeah, right. Verda, you should pay attention to my introductions. <laughs> okay, I will. Um, so I'll let them tell you about how they met and this this great partnership of theirs. So Royce. I'm excited to Yay. tell you about Royce Epstein. She's been a friend of mine for many, many years. I've known her for, I don't even know how long, 15 years, maybe, maybe more. She's been an influencer in the industry for all of those years and more. She is a materials and product specialist and worked for a long time at design firms, always feeling that pull towards the resource and materials library, which has served her well because that's how she became a materials specialist and then transitioned into product design and development. But that hardly defines her. She is 
a trend hunter, future forecaster, design strategist, writer, lecturer, teacher, art lover, musical talent, artist, doodler, paper weaver, blog publisher, coloring book designer, band member, and last but not least, a dissenter by design. You forgot dog mom. Yeah. A what? Dog mom. Dog mom and dog mom. The cutest, oh, that's the right. dog ever. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm so excited for today, but we need three hours instead of one to talk to these two incredible women. So we better get started. Hello, guys. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Royce. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Welcome to Break Some Dishes. We're glad you guys could join yeah. us. It's a Friday. Hey, <laughs> so. Friday on our side of the world. <laughs> yes. And so, yeah, let's just start right in with how you guys forged this partnership and started this amazing studio. Yeah, so I, as you mentioned, um, I went to the University of Oregon to study sustainable design strategies and with a concentration particularly to interior application. And one of those areas was materiality. So I did a technical teaching certificate. So I always knew I wanted to teach the materials and methods course um, for interiors. And over the years, I started to develop this project. And now I've been teaching this custom design carpet project for, I don't know, 12 years at different institutions. And when I started at Ohio State, um, my local material rep and good friend put me in contact with Royce because she said that we had too much in common and we're passionate about too many things that we absolutely had to meet. And it's just kind of been serendipitous ever since. And this project, while it always was about designing a custom carpet piece, um, I was always looking for a way to bridge academia and the real world. Um, I try to do that in all of the courses that I teach, design studios, et cetera, with different partnerships. And it just made sense to partner with industry, particularly one that has a manufacturing very focused in sustainability and reducing our environmental impact through the products we specify and create. And also with someone like Royce, who is an expert in um, trend forecasting, is very passionate about sustainability and is also really interested in youth generations and their vision for the future. So I think we ended up having this shared love and passion for what we do. And it's just been very serendipitously perfectly aligned. I did forget to mention that Royce works for Mohawk Carpet now, and they're a very cool firm, always on the leading edge of design and innovation. And sustainability. Yeah, great story Yeah, so there. the project in working together, like I said, it, it started off as um, a carpet design specifically, but with Royce being brought in on this project, it really elevated the students' ability to concept and connect to the um, the process, the evolutionary process of creating those designs. So Royce comes in and brings her expertise with trend forecasting and you know thinking about Jen. Uh, Jen Scrap, we'll talk about that. Scrap Culture, we'll talk about that more as we dive into the podcast. But she brings that in and it really allows the students to start thinking about the future they envision and how their values and ethics are going to drive that, that worldview and how through the act of design, we can make positive impact. And then they translate that through the technical aspects of sustainability into developing a carpet concept. So that's kind of how we met and the project we developed. And it was kind of this symbiotic back and forth, further development of the, of the project itself. 
Great. I think it's so important to be, to teach these young kids about sustainability and and even just iterating and thinking and innovating around all of those ideas. And of course, it's so important to bring together practical and real life experiences. So super cool. And you guys have come up with yielded some amazing product out of it or ideas, right? Yeah. Coming from Mohawk's perspective, you know, we had a few different reasons why we want to, wanted to partner with Rebecca's studio at Ohio State. Um, one is we absolutely love working with students, and we've done lots of other projects with students, not necessarily on this level, but with just different kinds of competitions like uh, Jerkin, which is our, our brand that um, provides uh, carpet and flooring for hospitality. You know, we, ha- we have always have a competition called Discover with students. So this was a, a competition, but a, a different sort. Um, and as Rebecca said, we wanted to really bring our sustainability thinking, design thinking, the platform that we always uh, talk about is the living product platform, which I know, John, you're familiar with. Um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with it, but it comes from the um, ILFI, uh, the Living Futures Institute. And it's really about hand printing. And you know, at Mohawk, we have over the last five years, been really trying to change our positioning on how we design so that sustainability is uh, driving design and also driving innovation and all those three things are like weighted equally. So that's sort of one piece of the puzzle. And then also, you know, when you work with with younger people, you know, teaching them about sustainability and the value of materiality, I think that's also important. You know, we live in such a, a consumerist lifestyle you know, throwaway culture that um, it's hard to get students to understand as a designer when you're designing a thing or a space, like there comes enormous responsibility. And as a manufacturer, like we understand that, but do design students understand that? And I don't know, you know, Rebecca teaches that, but I don't know if universally that's something that is, you know, on the university level. I think that what you're saying too, Royce, about, about the net positive movement is so important because we, we use this word sustainability and we drop it all over the place. And, you know, Rebecca, you have a, the, one of the, you, you know, you're a rare individual that has an opportunity to mold a young mind and to, and to, you know, these students are so, you know, they're sponges looking to soak up everything, but we drop this sustainability term on them and sustainability, you guys means, I mean, what do we, you know, if you played the word association game with sustainability, who knows what people would come up with, but my take on sustainability is it's the worst world. It's the worst word in the world for us to be using because sustainability for me means you're just doing enough to keep something from dying, right? Like if I'm walking down the street one day and somebody says, hey, how's the family? And I say, well, you know what? We're, we're sustaining everybody. That, but that's kind of a red flag that if you're just sustaining people, you're really, they're not thriving, right? But the great thing about this living product challenge that Royce is talking about, this net positivity and the ability to handprint, it means that you're actually fixing things, that you're actually making a positive impact. You're actually putting some stuff back as opposed to being less bad all the time because less bad doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. Right? And from a product manufacturing standpoint, like in a, a material standpoint, we're giving back more resources than we take to make something. So that could be water, that could be energy. With carbon, we don't refer to it as being carbon neutral. We actually say carbon positive, but it means the same thing. But the idea of hand printing is also about 
who you're touching, who you're reaching and having a social equity component to it. So, you know, us working with Rebecca on this class is an act of handprinting in a way because we're imparting our sustainability knowledge on this next generation and teaching them to care about um, materials that, you know, to your point, not only are sustainable, that but that can be regenerative or that can be restorative. And that's a big part of the sustainability movement today. And that's what we're working on. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because I was just last night having a conversation with the Sustains uh, group at Ohio State, which is a focused group of students coming in as freshmen and sophomores who are interested in learning more about sustainability with their core uh, general education. And actually at Ohio State, we are looking at redoing our entire general education and sustainability is one of the core modules that all of their GE classes, not all, but some of their GE classes will fall into that category that may align with earth sciences or social sciences. Um, and design is something as part, as a member of the Ohio State Sustainability Institute and our learning committee for this work. It's amazing how much the rest of the world doesn't understand design's role in sustainability and the impact we can have through the work that we do. And it's illuminated every time that we come to the table and we have to fight for what we're doing as designers to educate others for our impact. And I think it's pretty fascinating also that as a as one of the largest, we used to be the largest university um, in the country, that we're restructuring our foundational education for incoming students to make sustainability a primary goal. Um, I think that's because we're also seeing it, not just our academic values, but we're seeing it from the youth generation and their values. You know, just some interesting statistics. A survey of Gen Z said 76% of students or people reported that they are concerned about humanity's impact on the planet. And that's the number one issue plaguing the world today. And that was a survey done in 2015. So imagine what that percentage would be if that survey was done again today. And I think that really leads to why Royce and I, our collaboration together is so important is that by merging academia and professional practice as an outreach through this podcast, through her network of manufacturers and the designers she touches, and then my network of academic dissemination, whether it's through papers or conferences, we can start to spread design's impact and to mitigate and reduce global waste. You know, Royce and I, a year ago, actually, it was like a year ago this weekend, I think. I know. <laughs> we were in Berlin presenting this project at a conference, an academic conference that's been happening every other year now called PLATE, which is the Product Lifetimes and the Environments Conference. Um, and it's just really interesting because we were one of the few people from the interior design architecture realm, the majority are product designers and fashion designers. And it's interesting, you know, you talk about breaking dishes and being disruptive and how our industry can do that. I think part of it is also we need to break into the other areas of design and show what we do through our physical environment to make an impact. Mm. That's so great. And I, I see us just wanting to hire these students that have this knowledge and we're, we're going through it right now in my firm. I, I, I'm a little embarrassed to say a little a little late to the game, but not so much. I think interior design has has been late to the game. I think in general, and my theory on that. You guys want to hear my theory on that? Yeah, let's hear your theory and, on that. Interior designers, it's about the interior environment. 
which means it's about people and their comfort. Right. And so we always seem to put people first and the, like the well Institute and all those, is that what's called John, the well Institute? Yeah. Yeah. Um, The well building. And it's all about human health, human safety, all of that. And I keep thinking, all right, well, if that's fine, but if the planet isn't healthy, then it's not going to matter. People aren't going to matter. But they go hand in hand, obviously. If you start addressing human wellness and, and safety and all that, then it, it does tie back into the planet. But I, I, I think that that's where our interior design mindset has been. And I'm trying also to change that to, to, for us to look more forward and to really start thinking about planetary wellness. But it's a bit of a struggle, especially with the older generations. The younger generations get it, my staff. They get it, but they but they need to learn now. They didn't learn it in school, and it's yeah, it's not easy. We're starting with materials. We're starting with just figuring out what materials to specify, what materials not to specify, and it's not easy. It's overwhelming. Well, and I think it goes to John. You were talking about the definition of sustainability. It's a term that can get easily greenwashed. You know, we've heard that term buzzed around as well. But mm. there are three pillars to sustainability. One is environmental. Another is social and the third is economic. And it's oftentimes that we're not thinking about all three individually. Yeah. The triple right. bottom line, right? That's the And so, you know, line. when we think about the collaboration with Mohawk and Royce, it is about creating a product that keeps their business sustained, but also making a positive impact on the planet through what we might be taking out to recycle through the life cycle analysis of the carpet that we're creating or the designs, but then how the design impacts the well-being of the people. And then also the social aspect also goes back to who's making the product. So it is really this full life cycle analysis. And I think as designers, we often forget that there are the three pillars and that we need to figure out how to do all three. And I, and I think that that also leads into a further understanding of the UN sustainability goals and what, I think there's 17 of them. Is that right? Something like that. Yeah. You know, I focus a lot on number 12, which is the life cycle component of it. But I think that that ties into it too, is that we need as designers too, to further educate the population, our clients, our design team about what, what holistic sustainability is. I think you're doing uh, the right thing. And I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, your trip to Berlin and, and you're, you're needing to bring other design disciplines into this conversation. I think what Verda and I have discovered through this podcast, it's interesting. And Verda, I give Verda a lot of credit because Verda had her epiphany um, a couple of years ago, Verda, right? You've said that, you know, you reached that point where you realized you were designing all of this amazing office space, but it was for the one percenters. It wasn't, you know, and it was, it was office space that you thought was probably going to go for about three to five years. And then, you know, you're going to be working on a renovation, right. Or a redesign. And, and so we learned something. We had my nephew on this podcast uh, a few weeks ago, and he's pursuing his doctorate over at Oxford and is working on on green ammonia. And we were trying to get him to like vilify the oil companies. We were like, aren't they all a bunch of greedy bastards, Zach? You know, and he's like, no, listen, listen, you can be, uh, uh, you know, an environmental chemical engineer and work for the oil companies and do good. 
and help the oil companies do good. And so he was like, you don't vilify, you can't, you know, the environmental movement can't be about exclusion and hypocrisy. You have to open up and try and bring everybody into the conversation. And so Verda and I have uncovered, okay, this, you've heard it here first, folks. Verda and I have uncovered what I have coined to be the holy trinity of activism. Verda, I'm going to put you on the spot. What? Wait. <laughs> Come on. What, do you, what is the holy trinity of activism? It's community. It's federal regulation and business. And, you know, I think Rebecca and Royce, I want to hear what Royce has to say too, but I think that's what you're doing here. Maybe, maybe you don't have the federal side of it in, but you are certainly bringing the community of your students into this corporate world uh, that Royce can represent, which I think is really fun. But to get back to what Verda yeah. mentioned, I mean, a lot of this is being driven by that Gen Z landscape. I mean, look at Greta Thunberg. I just watched the food documentary about her um, last weekend. I mean, she has an incredible following and she just believes with the core of her, you know, her body that like, you know, this is the right thing to do is to stand up for, you know, climate action. And, you know, she's inspired a whole movement and and really a generation of young yeah. people. And they were, but the funny thing is, if you watch the documentary, the young people were already in their own way, you know, protesting and practicing activism. She just didn't, you know, she was like her own island, but then she realized there's other people like her and then they kind of joined together and, and really, you know, created this incredible movement. And I think we see it in other ways, you know, not just related to sustainability, but look at the Parkland survivor students, Gen Z in general, like they're not willing to accept the world that, you know, us, uh, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and of course my parents are boomers, like the world that we are leaving behind for, you know, younger millennials and Gen Z, like they don't want it the way we're giving it to them. And they're demanding, they're not right. only demanding change, but they're making it themselves. Like, like my generation, you know, Gen Xers, like we rely on sort of older people to fix things for us, but not this generation, they're doing it themselves. And so I think the thing that Rebecca and I together were so inspired by, and it really, you know, motivated this project additionally beyond what the program was, was to see how sustainability looks through their eyes and what do they care about. And so that's how we came up with this term, Generation Scrap. The scrap word comes from a, a lecture that I gave to Rebecca's class called Scrap Culture. It's a coin, or sorry, a term that I coined um, related to this idea that waste can become, you know, material uh, for design. And it's, it's sort of a, you know, a little controversial because a lot of people just wish we wouldn't have waste at all. Like it would be nice if we could have zero waste and it would also be nice if we didn't have plastic, but we have so much plastic dedicated to either landfill or recycling and we need to do something with it because it's literally the fossil of the future. So our idea, you know, at least at Mohawk is like we make carpet fiber from plastic bottles. Um, obviously we have recycled content from bottles and other things. Um, other waste, but it's like what to do with the waste and can we turn it into something circular? So that started this, for me, at least this whole journey of like trying to figure out like what are other people doing? What are not only what are students doing, but emerging designers and other companies like John, you have a friend you introduced me to the, the guy from Bureo skateboards. Like that was a great example of that. Like I want to know what other companies are doing. And so mm-hmm. talk to yeah. Your friend there, and you know, he explained their process of taking nylon fishing nets out of the ocean and turning them into skateboard decks, and they're fully recyclable. 
So that's one of many, yeah. many examples that, you know, I explored in the Sunday scrap culture. Episode two, by the way, episode two. <laughs> and it's cool because, you know, like right now, yeah. like everyone can poo-poo plastic and we do, but at the same time, like it's here and we have to deal with what we have. Um, so maybe this is an interim step. And so we can fully get to the point where we have bioplastics instead that can biodegrade, but we're just not there yet. So in the meantime, you know, our industry, whether you're in manufacturing or, you know, architecture and interiors, like we have to figure out how to work with the materials that are better and do either less harm or obviously no harm. And that's carpet's, carpet's one of the toughest ones because it's a huge, there's a lot of waste that carpet creates. And we were talking with, well, somebody from your, a competitor <laughs> on another episode, uh, Lisa Conway from no. Interface. And she lives in Philly too. Like I did. Yeah, I know. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah you guys huh? seem like soulmates too. She's kind of great. It's, she said the best thing is to just keep reusing the carpet, which often isn't, isn't possible, but that, that carpet is meant to last a long, long time. And it, generally is not used nearly as long as its lifespan. Yeah. And I think a lot of it too is just about decision sets and choices that you make. Like circularity is always going to be better than putting something in the landfill. So there's a choice that you can make right there. From our standpoint with, you know, working with Rebecca's students, like, you know, we took this scrap culture concept, presented it to her students and then waited to get a reaction from them. And that's where this, like, you know, we together, we coined this other term generation scrap, which is, Again, how does Gen Z feel about these sustainability models and what would they come up with if they could solve some of these problems today? And that's really what this design competition was about. And I think if we talk about like the winner of last year, um, yeah. her project was just incredible. And yeah, yeah tell us you, about can it. Can you help us visualize one of the solutions? Yeah. Yeah, Rebecca, why don't you tell them about the winning project from last year? And then, yeah, yeah, I think. Um, to not get too nerdy on us, but I'll um, I'll cite Royce and I's paper and just kind of further define what Gen Scrap is and in, in pop culture, and um, I think it kind of helps make it a little bit more visual too. So in our paper that we wrote for Plate, we said if the Oxford Dictionary defines pop culture as modern popular culture aimed particularly at younger people then one might define this current anthropocene movement amongst millennials and Gen Z, that of grappling with society's abundance of waste with the aspiration to reduce their ecological footprint as scrap culture. So embracing a scrap culture mindset, more people can learn to embrace waste as an asset, a type of currency, if you will, a commodity and resource for inventing materials and products foreseeing potential implementations for waste streams. As generations who have only known a scrap culture, one could refer to them as generation scrap. And I find that really interesting because that that is who they are. They, like we said, this generation of Gen Z, younger millennials have grown up in this really different world than all of the four of us have. They have a totally different perspective on the world. And the way that, you know, they envision where this is going and what they see potential in is totally different. And so it's like the sky's the limit. And I think that's what I love and relish about being in the academic environment is I'm constantly being energized and invigorated by their optimism, 
their passion and innovation. And I think, you know, the last project or the winning project from two years ago, Catherine Hunter did such a great job in really one, caring about people. So her project was first started by an understanding of climate refugees. And I was so excited to hear about this because when I went to the plate plate conference the very first year in 2015, I was sitting at a table at dinner and there were two researchers from Australia who mentioned this term and I had never heard of it before. I felt like climate refugees, what is this even about? What's happening? I had heard it discussed in the States. And so when Catherine said, I'm interested in understanding climate refugees, what's causing them to become refugees? What is their path? and their journey, and then what waste might be caused by them. And so she discovered that there are tons of, literal tons, of life jackets discarded all over the beaches, particularly in Greece and Turkey and the Mediterranean as they flee, and those pile up, they become pollutants. And so she was really interested in seeing, well, the raw materials of a life vest are nylon fiber, and a foam inner. And so how could those materials be recycled into becoming nylon carpet fibers and backing material? And so that way we clean up the oceans. And then what was really beautiful about it too, was she went the next step and said, it's important for us to emotionally connect to these humans, right? So that's the, that's the person, the human aspect of sustainability. And so she looked at the migration patterns, the heat maps, and she discovered, um, a, a different patterns for land versus ocean. And she translated that into a graphic language for the carpet itself. So you could imagine some of them are straight lines. Some of them are more organic and overlapping. And so there were three different patterns and two different colorways, one based in like land colors and one on ocean colors. And the idea would be that maybe this was more of a healthcare driven product that you would literally be able to stand on a 24 inch square carpet tile which represents the width of a 24-inch life jacket and humanly be able to connect with a person who is a refugee. So you can imagine when we read this submission and saw her video and all of her documentation that she put in for the project, like I just burst into tears. And this is how I know when someone wins a competition. I judge a lot of design competitions and that's literally like, if you move me to tears, like you have won. And that's happened many times in many situations, but that happened here. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this, project has got everything about sustainability you know it's got sort of this idea of scrap culture of like giving a a value to waste but also like what is the human value of this experience of migration and the migration is caused in this case you know from climate change of people fleeing inhabitable places because of global warming so there's so much embedded in the topic like she really did a great job of covering many of the issues of sustainability, not just, you know, one idea of recycling or, or whatnot. So, you know, very sophisticated. And, you know, I have no doubt that Rebecca's students are sophisticated, but it was just really exciting to see such a great manifestation of all these different topics that, you know, we talk about as as professionals. And the ideas span from understanding the waste impact of the textile industry or the fashion industry um, to understanding the garbage patch in the Pacific Ocean to, you know, something very specific like climate refugees or cosmetics. This year's winning project was addressing um, the plastic waste of the cosmetic industry. And so she was translating, you know, those types of color palettes and formations of the environmental resources that we are depleting in order to make unhealthy 
non-natural cosmetics as well. And so that was a really interesting investigation. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, I think that, you know, it it does come down to um, the nomenclature a bit because uh, Royce, a few years ago, I listened to your scrap culture talk and you were onto something then in that you were talking about the value of scrap. And, And a lot of times we say, you know, a material will never be recycled if it has no value. People have to see value in it. And when I hear the word scrap, I don't know about you guys, but subconsciously I put the word metal after it because that's how I always heard the word scrap, scrap metal, scrap metal, because scrap metal was valuable. People wouldn't really throw that away, right? But when you say scrap, I think we we unfortunately have this image of scrap metal or a junkyard or a waste heap or a, scrap can actually be... A, can be beautiful. And I think what's cool is, you know, Rebecca and and Royce, you're teaching a generation of students that scrap is a a valuable resource. It's not something you throw away. And that's, you know, that's the epiphany that we should have in this whole movement is sustainable doesn't have to be a, a hut with a thatched roof. I mean, it's, 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 it's like, um, Russell told us the other day, Verda, it's the aesthetics of ethics. That's beautiful. That's, yeah, really beautiful. that's a great point. Like um, I have a, an example in my scrap culture lecture of a Japanese designer named um, Kore Awamoto, where he takes PVC pipe and blows it as if it's glass and creates these gorgeous vases. And normally you would think, I don't want like a waste object in my house is like a design object, right? Like, but they're incredibly beautiful. So it really made me think about the value of, you know, something that's upcycled and could it, you know, if we just change our mindset about the sort of, not just the value of waste, but the aesthetic value of waste, like that could change our whole industry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now we have all this pandemic waste that maybe that's the problem. I don't know how we're going to tackle that. I know. There's a lot of... It's interesting how your solution, the solutions, the winning solutions have come back to social justice as well, merging them with the climate issue. Well, and I think getting back to John's point about sustainability, like that word has kind of lost all meaning and it's sort of vague. And I think for us, we're trying to connect it to humanity. And I think right now our interior design and architecture community and industry is also doing that, you know, like with the living product and living building challenge and the well program. And, you know, I've gone to a zillion lectures now for home and zooming all the time. And, you know, every single lecture is about some connection point to humanity, whether it's and health or wellness, yeah. or now it's neurodiversity and emotional diversity and, you know, all of these things. And they're all equally valuable we just never really talked about them before in our industry. So expanding that definition of sustainability. Yeah. And Mohawk has a, uh, an amazing story too. You have a carpet tile factory, right? That is, can you just tell us a little bit about that? So we have um, different plants in the South. Um, uh, Mohawk industries is in Georgia and our design center, we call it the Light Lab. It's a it's a um, very sustainable project um, that actually was designed by students as well at SCAD. So there's another student connection. 
Um, but it's a living building. So it's been certified as a living building. But then we also have a plant that makes all of our modular carpet tiles. So we, we design carpet and hard flooring as well. But this particular plant is for carpet. We make carpet squares as well as carpet planks. It's in Glasgow, Virginia. And when we started with the living product platform, maybe four years ago, five years ago, somewhere in there, um, we designed our first product. It was called Lichen. That was a uh, living product certified. And then the next year we came out with a few more. And as we started to do this, you know, we're a really big manufacturer. We make hundreds of products every year. And we thought, why are we working so hard to get each and individual product certified? Let's get our plant certified. That's actually the most important thing to do because then we can have a, make like a real difference when it comes to this hand printing idea. Um, and also I should mention part of living product too is about material health and transparency. So when we see tra say transparency, we make you aware of all the ingredients in the material, how it's made, where it's made. We let you know if something has a chemical of concern. Um, but we have products that are what we call readily free, so no chemicals of concern. Anyway, so the plant in Glasgow, we actually got it living. I don't, I don't know even know what to call it. I guess it's a living site. So the actual factory itself is now you know living certified and we're the only manufacturer that i know of um to date that has done this so everything that we make in that plant that's red free is now automatically a living product so we've gone from one to five to hundreds and hundreds now it's amazing yeah that's crazy and there's a, that's the ambitious yeah, and the hand printing man. part is really important with the mill as well because it's about you know like we take water in and we actually don't use water to dye our our yarn. We actually use the water to cool the, the looms because they get hot when they're in production and they're very fast. So the water that we take in, we actually clean it and return it back to the river. So that's an example of hand printing where we're giving back you know, cleaner water than we took in, for example. And there's, there's, we have hundreds of examples of that, but that's just one. Yeah. And it must make a difference, Rebecca, that, uh, you know, you have students that see this, like you stay, they see an experience good corporate behavior. So they don't have the knee-jerk reaction of vilifying corporations for killing the planet. They're seeing companies do the right thing. They are. And I think cool. that's also what they're looking for. Um, you know, I think earlier in our conversation, we were starting to touch on the, the values that Gen Z has and what they're looking for in the companies that they align themselves with. Um, they're very influenced by each other. You know, as you mentioned, Greta and, you know, the Parkland and social media and other influencers, they're very much a community of activists and their values are really strong. You know, it's not just about the planet and sustainability. In fact, it's interesting in the retail design class, before we even talk about the, the impact of the retail store on the planet, I just start asking them about what are their values. And when I first started doing the studio, the first thing that people were saying was sustainability is my number one concern. And over the last three, let's see, it's 2020. So yeah, the last three or four years, the conversation shifted a little bit and it's sustainability is the last thing that a, a lot of times they mention. And I always ask like, well, then what, why? And their comment is, well, duh, of course we have to address sustainability, but right now we're, you know, you talked about um, social justice. The things where we care about most are human relationships 
deepening human relationships. And that gets to some of the trend forecasting Grace has been talking about, um, you know, about human contact and connectivity and, um, you know, return to humanity. And then, you know, they're really, they really care about creating memorable experiences and leaving lasting memories. They really care about giving back, but not just to their local, their global community. And this youth generation understands that they are global citizens as well as local citizens. And I think that that's a really interesting conversation, especially in the political atmosphere we're in right now. And they also really care about equality in all aspects. You know, we see that with the rise of what's happened over the summer with racial justice issues. They really care about religious equality, gender and sexual identity equality, which I just read an article this week with research are doing on sustainability about gender identity and its relationship to sustainable values and sustainable actions, which is super fascinating. I'll have to send you guys over the information, but it was intriguing to think about older generations have preconceived stigmas of um, sustainability being more feminine than masculine, whereas youth generations, because there is a more blurred line between feminine and masculine and non-binary, that youth generations do not have some of those preconceived stigmas. And it's super fascinating. Mm. And yeah, social justice and environmental sustainability. And the thing is, all of that is wrapped up because we know that social justice is environmental justice and it is economic justice and it is education justice and all of these things interwoven together. And I think that's really the power of this youth generation. And another really interesting statistic, I know I'm like totally nerding out on stats, but there was a recent (laughs) uh, Pew research study of census from the Census Bureau. And it showed that 48% of post-millennial Americans, so primarily Gen Z and the beginning of Gen Alpha, are racially and ethnic minorities. And so what that really means is that there's more uh, interracial relationships, which is, again, further blurring those lines of identity. And that really translates into their values that are driving their decisions, whether that's a consumer impact or whether that's an um, educational impact, social decisions, all of that. And it really goes back to, you know, and another stat is that 78% of millennials and Gen Z would recommend a company they believe is a good citizen and be, uh, they'd be loyal uh, to that yeah. business. And they only, it was like 62% said that they wanted to work at a company that represented those values as well. And so they're making their life decisions based on this blurring of the lines mm-hmm. of, the, of these elements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I do think though, human centered is, i I'll say it again. I feel it's a little problematic though. I feel like you can't, if humans at the, if human is at the center, then where is nature? And I think one of the things that we've lost over the last few generations is our connection to nature. And I think of the carpet that you guys designed Royce relaxing floors that is brings nature patterns into play. And it creates this, pattern that's supposed to reduce stress. And I love, I love when things, when we can connect human wellness or human social justice to nature. And I I think that it's way more healing and way more regenerative. Yeah. I think the key is connecting humanity to to humans and to nature. Like I keep reminding people and I I had a, a, a lecture 
um, a trend lecture I gave all last year called Return to Humanity. And it was this idea that we are of nature. Like we forget that when we die, like your iPhone doesn't come with you and your stuff doesn't come with you. Like your body returns to nature. And that's the way nature has designed all living things. All living things return back to nature. And we really forget that because we're too busy, you know, using all the artificial things that we've created in our lives to keep us busy until the day we die, right? So, you know, the idea of returning humanity is just like we have to reclaim what makes us human, you know, whether it's uh, emotion. But, you know, the one thing I have been talking about the most is this physical connection to our primal selves, like, you know, your body, you know, I did my DNA test a couple of years ago and I found out I was like a smidgen Neanderthal. And that was actually really exciting because it reminds you that like you are connected to millions of years of humanity. You're connected to yeah. you know your iPhone or whatever. So it just, it's, it's, it's kind of a lesson for all of us. Like we we're here for a short time, well, but we are nature. And we have to remember that the things yeah. that do sustain us are actually from nature. Like the sunlight, you know, like those patterns in nature that our eyes are literally craving to see, to keep feeling grounded and mm-hmm. safe. Yeah. Well, what do you guys, I'm curious what you think about, you know, think about this pandemic we've been in, right? And how we've had to simplify our lives. And so do you guys, Rebecca and Royce and Verda, I mean, what do you guys think? Have we, has the pandemic actually helped us a little bit? pull away or is it hurt us and well i think it's both like the pandemic i think happened as a condition of nature freaking out with climate change issues like it's all related i've been talking about superbugs coming like this has been a trend for a long time you know we didn't predict that we, it would be called coronavirus and we'd be home for a year we you know we didn't predict that but, you know, I remember two, three years ago talking about superbugs are on the rise because of global warming and the way, you know, we behave as humans. So that's not a surprise. Like, I wasn't surprised when this happened. Yeah, but I, I feel like I'm more in tune with nature now because I'm not on an airplane. I'm not running around in office buildings. You know, I, I don't know. For me, it has forced me to slow down. It has forced me to simplify well, my life. Country too, right? See, like I live in downtown Philadelphia. It's totally urban. I think there's three trees in my neighborhood. Um, so I don't feel that way. And I'm inside all the time. And, mm. you know, I go out to walk my dog once mm. a day, but we're not seeing nature. Yeah. I think the uh, thing that it's done for us, it's, it's, it's allowed us, everyone has been forced to question what is normal. And I, I read something like, we do not want to go back to normal. That's not what we want to do. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, before COVID, I was on an airplane like John. I traveled about 70% of my job. And while that's exhilarating because I got to hang out with all of you guys in person and do these amazing things and see amazing things. And, you know, my big thing is always going to see art and going to see music. And I miss that terribly. But rethinking how to live has been important. Like, you know, I'm someone with a lot of health issues. And so that was not healthy for me to be on an airplane in different time zones all the time. You know, like in the eight months that I've been home, my health has actually dramatically improved to the point where I can get off certain medication because I'm not in an airplane all the time. So like, it's really interesting to think about that, you know, like I'm eating better, I'm sleeping better, you know, now because I can cook and I'm not eating junk food at the airport, Mm -hmm. you know. I think, John, you said that you said a key word to the 
to all of this, to sustainability and to the pandemic's impact. And it's slow. It's caused us to slow down and it's allowing us to contemplate and to define what we want and place value on. The idea of slowing the slow, the slowness, right? That goes back to the slow food trend, which informed the slow fashion movement, which then goes to what I'm trying to do with the slow, uh, slow retail aspect. This idea of slowing down allows, and that goes into Marie Kondo and the Marie impact of doing what brings you joy. It, it, by slowing down, we're able to make more thoughtful, conscious decisions about what we're doing and what we value and how that translates into our actions. And I feel like that's what we're starting to see. Again, I was kind of doing some research this week and looking at uh, COVID's impact on uh, retail and consumer behaviors. And it's youth generations are realizing how much, how much waste is being produced during this scenario, whether that's, you know, we can't use our reusable cups at the, at the Starbucks or the coffee shop. We can't use our reusable bags at the grocery store, the sanitation aspect of it. That's been really impactful. And so, you know, I was doing a, I did a research project over the summer, specifically looking at returning students to campus through the, their um, student perspective. How do we return in a post-pandemic world, which is what we were hoping for. We returned in a existing pandemic world. But one of the concepts that um, the students created was this PPE recycling station and what that might turn into. And I think we're really becoming conscious of our impact because we're able to be more aware of what we're doing in our actions. I hope at least, not maybe everybody, but maybe more and more getting on that, that train of thought. All right. Well, we're coming up on the hour here. I can't believe it. God, it went by way too fast. Are you guys are you guys scheming for a new studio or something together? Another? Um, I hope so. We're trying to plan twenty twenty one. It's just uh, you know everything's up in the air. All our trade shows keep moving, but I'm sure no matter what happens between Mohawk and OSU, Rebecca and I will always do things together. We love traveling and lecturing together and, you know, collaborating on papers and, and whatnot. And, and it's so funny because what you were talking about earlier, Rebecca, I literally just wrote two different articles for a work design magazine, um, which will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. But one is about the evolution of materials mm. from, from a sustainability standpoint, like biomaterials. And then the other one is all about activism uh, and in design, like how can design help shape social movements? Yeah. So funny because you mentioned all these things and I'm like, you know, like we haven't even talked about that. And I'm writing about the same things that Rebecca's thinking. About. We're always on the same wavelength. We're always on the same wavelength. Your Rebecca, spirits. I just realized you must be teaching all online right I, now. For the most part, um, I came back starting in a hybrid model. I think I taught my junior interior studio twice in person at the beginning. And we have collectively decided not to, obviously, with here in Ohio, we just turned in Columbus in particular, turned to a, a face purple. So we're not going back at all, but we already knew that post Thanksgiving that we weren't going to return to campus. Honestly, we've just had to really be adaptable and flexible and go with the flow and what the students are able to do. It's definitely been a transition. Um, there's been some great learning experiences and new collaborations we can do virtually that we couldn't do if everything was in person, but there's definitely, it's the human piece that's missing. You know, about two weeks ago, the students hit a wall and like my creativity is depleted. And 
there's just something that can't be replaced when you're not in the same room feeding off of each other's energy and able to connect and collaborate in, in a way that just can't, it just can't be replaced when you're, you're working isolated. So it's been an interesting semester. It'll be another interesting semester next, next semester. And hopefully we'll be back. Um, I don't want to say normal, but we'll be back to some of the positive qualities in the fall, hopefully. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, Let's thanks, you guys. So that'll be good. <laughs> I didn't go to politics yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> well, we appreciate you taking some time out to tell us a little bit about what you were doing. And you seem to be kindred spirits, so I think you're going to find a lot more to do together. I love for sure. rap. I and, love uh, rap culture. I love these projects. Um, I love the fact that you're yep. you're enabling and educating the next generation and... Yeah, we were actually supposed to present together at EACON this past June. Our, we took the same paper and, and kind of formed it into a little bit of a different format and submitted it to the Merchandise Mart, and it got accepted. We were very excited, and then, of course, the whole thing didn't happen. So maybe you'll see me live at yeah. the next NEACON next fall. Yeah. Next yeah. October, yeah. Well, you don't do what we did, which is start a podcast, because our lecture series got canceled. <laughs> Just don't do it. If you're thinking about it, yep. don't do it. We're still Instagram is for, and you know. Yeah. Before we go, I wanted to plug your Instagram, Descent by Design. I love it because it presents all kinds of ways that artists and designers are protesting through through art and design. And it's an incredible, and Royce really does her research and everybody has to subscribe to her Instagram. Follow us, yeah. Yeah, um, I do that with another awesome design a friend named Caroline Tiger. She's a design writer here in Philadelphia. And we've done some other like curatorial type projects together. And and we do curate this. Like we look for kind of evidence uh, of design um, that has been addressing dissent. And so dissent, dissent means a lot of things, but basically it means just like going against the man, you know, for yeah. social issues and, and whatnot. Um, and so we're not just looking at like, you know, necessarily like a shepherd fairy, you know, print, which we, we've done that, or, you know, I've done research and written about the history of the peace sign, things like that. But we also look at space, like how can space be designed to allow for dissent? Um, you know, like if you look at Occupy or any of those kinds of movements, like that very much about place. So um, anyway, we get into a lot of that and the, the, Instagram is really about our writing. It's a, it's a place for us to write, although it's quite limited because Instagram only gives you 2,200 characters to make your case there. But, um, you know, it's really a place where we can curate these examples of showing how, you know, design can shape movements. Um, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Great platform. And right, I've sure. sent you a few, well, a few things that you've posted. Like, what's the movement, Eyes Wide... Oh, the Wide Awakes. The Wide Awakes. Yeah, you actually told me about them. Yeah, I did. I told you about that, and you posted a, a couple weeks later. And I just love how they've merged this in, this historical movement, brought it back to life, and then some some graph amazing graphic designer and artist group is behind it, and they just put out 
just these incredible graphics. And I think just more power just gives more power to the movement to have that kind of visual. Yeah. And I, I think what's so interesting is that there's so many connections historically, like, you know, the thing about progress is like, it's always like, you know, two steps forward, three steps back or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, we make progress and then the pendulum swings the other way because everything that we write about now has been, you know, happening throughout history. Like there, there are definite historical connections. Like last night I watched that movie with Sacha Baron Cohen, not Barat, but the, <laughs> the one where he plays Abby Hoffman, the Chicago. Yeah. Oh yeah. Fantastic. And I'm watching the whole time I'm watching this movie. I'm literally shouting out at the TV, you know, oh, that's like Black Lives Matter. <laughs> oh, that's like this. That's like that. Like there's so many connections to things that are happening today when that was happening, you know, in the, in the 1960s. It's called zero progress, right? It's called zero progress. Right in place, um, man. That's the point is that we have to look at things in context of history to keep pushing forward. And that's true for sustainability. It's true for social equity. It's certainly true for all of these social movements. So we just we have a lot of work to do. We just keep yeah. moving. And it's a constant effort, right? You know, we were talking earlier about the big corporations. While some trains move a little slower, we can take steps forward. Others maybe can move faster and we can take leaps. But collectively, all of those steps add up and they'll get us to where we need to go. But we all have to be heading in the right direction. Well, and as, mm-hmm. and as well, designers, yeah. there's a lot of value add that we can, we can, we can really move the needle by just um, lending, yeah, just adding to the either to the innovation or the beauty, the aesthetics or whatever it is. Or the inspiration. Yeah. You got to find inspiration in all these yeah, storylines. It's hard sometimes to find that hope, at least particularly lately, but from, um, <laughs> from what, when, when Royce and I collaborate with these students, I think that's where we see the future is bright. There's a lot of hope lying in the direction that they're leading us. So. Um, especially for us jaded Gen Xers, like they're like a, you know, breath of sure. <laughs> uh, jaded Gen right now. That's a great place to end. Yes. Yep. Yes. Thank you. Thank you both, Rebecca and Royce, yeah, for joining us. It was great to, great to see your smiling faces. Royce, it's always yeah. nice I to miss see you. Guys. you so. All three of you. I miss you all. Hope. I know. Yeah. Same here. Same here. So we're looking forward to following you too and seeing what uh, what amazing project yeah. you come up with next. Yeah. So. Four of us will collaborate on something right. else in the future. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> <laughs>